I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Titanic, the 1997 film written and directed by James Cameron. I'm joined today by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. Before we jump in, our question for people listening on the Spotify app is, what is your favorite James Cameron movie? Let us know, and uh, we will check all that out. Piranha 2, The Spawning. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. Nice. Avatar 9. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe someday. Someday. We're getting there. Okay, so Titanic is a movie that we're going to try to talk about now. Somehow. (laughs) This is the first tape uh, listener, and at the midpoint, <laughs> you'll have to take out this VHS tape and put in tape two if you want to continue listening to the podcast. Mm-hmm. So, Titanic is one of the biggest movies of all time, and I feel like my appreciation of it has only grown over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember when it came out, liking it. I think I saw it three times in theaters. Wow! So I really liked it and enjoyed it and was just so impressed by the filmmaking, which is epic and crazy. You know, I watched it a lot. Then after it came out on video and revisited it when it they had the 3D re-release, uh, but I hadn't really seen it in, in a, several years now. And so watching it this time, it was just so impressive. And it's such a movie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just the most movie that has ever movied. Yep. Yeah, the scope of it, the number of genres it can be from scene to scene. Like, it just, there's so much to talk about. But I want to rewind to the theater back in 1997 when some of us, anyway, were watching it at what, 13, 11? 11. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The three of us were 11. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Because, yeah, this was such a huge deal. And, you know, I remember exactly where I was in the theater. I was sitting next to my grandma. Kind of an awkward (laughs) movie to see uh, when sitting next to one's grandmother. At age 11, especially. At age 11. Yeah. 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 Being so blown away and just the awe that comes from this movie. So Alex and Trisha, tell me about your viewing experiences. Trisha, what was it like for you? So I was 11, and therefore I actually didn't see this movie in the theater in 1997. My parents decided that was too young for me, or I was too young for it. My sister got to go. She's two years older than me. And she told me like every single thing about it. (sighs) But I wasn't allowed to go see it at the time. And then, of course, I caught it later, like a few years later, when we didn't have the VHS tapes. So I must have seen it at a friend's house or rented it from the mm. blockbuster. I'm going to mm-hmm. guess is something that I probably did. <laughs> We're old. <laughs> uh, but I do remember in two, in 2007, I was in Columbus, Ohio, which is where my family lives. And the Ohio Theater, which is Columbus's like old grand movie palace from back in the day. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also where they have all their Broadway shows in downtown Columbus. It's a gorgeous like just google the ohio theater it's incredibly beautiful they showed it in 2007 as part of like the 10-year anniversary celebration and i went with some friends in 2007 and saw it in this big beautiful movie theater and that was kind of like my big titanic in the theater experience nice like being in that kind of opulent setting 
felt like it was transporting you to, to the amazing, you know, sort of extravagance of the sets and of course how the ship really was and really put you in the mood. So as everyone was like leaving the theater, there was this weird, like who leaves the theater door first in this crowd of people, Hmm. like sort of a weird disaster vibe to being in a big (laughs) crowded movie theater. That was that, you know, sort of antique kind of feeling to it all. But yeah. Just a wonderful, this movie, I don't even know where you even start to talk about it because it's just this towering cinematic landmark mm-hmm. and its status has in no way diminished. And as you're talking about, Michael, sort of the luster of it has only sort of grown, I think, in the intervening years, you know, backlash aside, which the backlash was sort of right afterward. But then, you know, now in the 21st century, now that more than 20 years have passed. I feel like we can see even more now. It's a bygone approach to filmmaking and a genre of filmmaking. And it was at the absolute height of its power. Right. And then all of the accolades were showered upon it and all of the records and and all of the everything. It's just, I don't really know where you start. Good luck to us. Hang in (laughs) here with us. (laughs) Listeners, we're making our way. Yeah. We're embarking, if you will. On a voyage. Embarking on our voyage. On a voyage. Yes, Hopefully thank you. it goes better than the yeah. Titanic. <laughs> Boat metaphors. Maybe let's not make them. Anyway. <laughs> Good luck with that. Cool. Okay. Yeah. And so, Alex, you did see it in a theater? Yes. Despite being younger than Trisha. Wow. Scandalous. Well, I mean, I saw Jurassic Park in theaters when I was seven yeah. or whatever. So yeah. Yeah, my yeah. parents were a little more lenient, I think. They were. To be fair, I'll say longtime listeners will have probably heard Alex talk about seeing it in the theater more than once. Brian, do you <laughs> want to tell the story of Alex seeing it in the theater? The full story. <laughs> yeah. Am I, am I say it all over again? I remember seeing it in theater so clearly. I think it was it was a holiday. It was, you know, it was a Christmas time thing. Or yeah, a New Year's thing. When we saw it, it was like on a holiday, I'm pretty sure. And it was mm-hmm. like with my parents and my grandpa, I think, was there. And so it was a whole family affair. And I just remember my theater experience for this movie is similar to Jurassic Park, actually, where I, I have a lot of sense memories of just being enveloped in this experience. And there's just certain shots and certain moments and certain sounds that when I rewatch it now, it like mm-hmm. tingles my brain. It was like, oh, like that's like my childhood. Right neurons that for some reason are still around 23 years later neurons are firing yeah so it's one of those movies for me that is just embedded in my psyche from that kind of formative theater experience and from rewatching it so many times afterwards on vhs you know the two the two tape vhs is also Mm -hmm. very iconic and (sighs) yeah kids these days they don't even know (laughs) how cool it was to have the two tapes it's funny to think about you know like 11 year old 12 year old Alex like what he was interested in watching and like often it was like I'm gonna fast forward to the end of tape one and then like watch from there into tape two (laughs) like iceberg on is what I'm interested in and watching it as an adult I'm so into the first half you know so it's it's fascinating to think back on what I cared about in different parts of my life anyway but as far as that first theater experience yeah it was this weird because it, it I was age 11 and it's like that coming of age time where like you're figuring out sexuality you don't really know what sex is yet you're kind of confused about it all and this movie was like it was it was a pg-13 movie so i think yeah. parents weren't expecting anything too crazy sex you know in the sex part but there is like full boobies and there is like <laughs> there is car sex scene yep thing that's happening and for my 11 year old brain who's like trying to figure out what it all means 
the car scene like only complicated and confused me like like it was it didn't help to like show me what sex was it was like is sex a horror scene because this is imagery fair usually reserved for horror movies and in the aftermath there are two people that are kind of sweaty and trembling yeah and like don't seem like necessarily happy uh one of them needs to be comforted like so it it just totally like just kind of like made everything worse as far as my like sexual confusion at the time that's one slice of my experience of this movie which i've recounted on this show before but beyond that there is that jurassic park level spectacle and oh yeah just impact that it had on me as an aspiring filmmaker i mean it's, it's one of the films that I credit to to the reason why it went on the path I went on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I rewatched it countless, countless times on VHS later. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's undeniably cinematic in a mm-hmm. way that does feel like classic now. Mm-hmm. And just yeah. like such a, like, yeah. This, yeah. It's so good. Brian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mentioned uh, briefly when um, I did uh, Sean Eastrich's Missing Frames episode uh, on mm-hmm. Titanic, I mentioned briefly that this was just a movie I never saw back in the day. And I go into it more on, on that episode if you want to check that out. But basically, 15-year-old goth kid dating a 15-year-old goth girl with 15-year-old goth friends and like older <laughs> divorced parents only child. There was no just like social venue for me to like, let's go see Titanic together. So so I just didn't see it then. I was obviously very aware of it and the cultural impact and stuff like that, but it just wasn't really on my radar. And then during my you know next 20 years of I should see all the big movies that I haven't seen and stuff I just it just never happened I put it on once for like maybe 30 minutes and just nothing against the movie I just kind of decided I wasn't in the mood at that moment I mean, did so you even make it to the historical part at that point like- <laughs> right <laughs> I, yeah, I think like I remember like Kathy Bates showing up like that's maybe the only thing I remember about. and again even that was probably 15 years ago at this point so I don't even remember oh. that so then funnily enough Trisha with your movie palace experience the early 2020 i had a ticket to go see it in a movie palace oh wow and uh at this point you guys had started doing sean's missing frames uh podcast where Mm -hmm. you know the guests come on to watch a movie they've never seen before so i reached out to him and said hey i might be the only person alive who hasn't seen titanic do you want to do an episode he said let's do it um and then for whatever reason not not for 2020 reasons but the screening got changed and moved and everything and i never ended up seeing it in the theater but sean and i had already planned this podcast so i watched it at home which was great because it was still an excuse to finally watch titanic sure and yeah and just sat my girlfriend and watched it she of course had seen it before but hadn't seen it in a long long time so and we just sort of gave ourselves over to it we're like look this is going to be like a somewhat over the top you know somewhat 90s kind of thing but like let's not go in with any sort of uh I don't know. Cynicism. Yeah. Cynicism or like wall up or anything like that. Just like, let's give ourselves over Mm. to this. And we just had a a, a great time watching it. It was just such a fun experience. And I, I agree with you, Alex, that I was into the first half so much that I was like, Oh yeah, they're gonna. There's gonna be a whole other thing that happens in this movie, huh? Cause right? Because it's, it's yeah. Titanic, yeah. But I was so invested in just the the characters and the love story and stuff that I was like just happy to keep watching that, you know. Uh, but then, of course, the second half of this movie is insane, and and so we'll talk about all of that. But finally, got to see it last year. Liked it a lot. Rewatched it for this. Liked it a lot. You know what a movie, and uh, I'm glad that I'm able to watch it so many years later and still appreciate it. Hmm. Cool. That's good to hear that that people can still watch it today and and appreciate it for what it is, which is crazy. So I think on this watch, I was trying to be more 
analytical film analysis mode. And I was paying more attention to the genre and kind of the things that it was borrowing from. And this was the first time that really hit me that this is almost it's like a a fairy tale fantasy love story where like instead of castles, you're on this crazy, beautiful, you mm. know, opulent and you know, she's kind of a princess and he's sort of a thing. And one of the special features, James Cameron talks about his pitch. James Cameron pitches, at least the stories about them are always really funny because it's like mm-hmm. with aliens, right? He like yeah, yeah. Goes, writes the word alien, adds the S, then draws the money sign on it. Yeah. yeah. So with this one, it was he brought in like a picture of type, uh, like a book full of like gorgeous illustrations of Titanic. And the middle was this big epic, like, you know, double paged picture. He slammed it down in front of the executives and said, Romeo and Juliet on that ship. <laughs> and that's like. What did it? I feel like I appreciated and could uh, like observe that structure at play more at this time and, and that framing and how just how that sucks you into the love story. And, and like you were saying, Brian, it's like kind of almost the magic trick this movie does is that it, it tells you you're on the Titanic. It's going to sink. You uh-huh. know, going in, the ship's going to sink. They show you an animation, which I think is really crucial about how mm-hmm. the ship yep. sinks. It does all these things. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of forget. And then it right. starts mm-hmm. to pepper it back in. And it's just the emotional dynamics of this movie are really impressive. I think it is also nice. I hadn't considered it until you were just speaking just then. But literally showing you what's going to happen mechanically later means that you don't have to worry about that. Like, because yeah, you can just focus on the characters and what they're dealing with. You don't have to be like, wait, why is it sinking? Which part is sinking? What's going on? It's like, no, we already showed you exactly what's going to happen. So mm. now you can just focus on the characters running around, trying to survive, trying to find each other, that kind of thing. Yeah. The frame story has been maligned over the years Mm. by people who thought it didn't add very much to the narrative and does delay, right? As we talked about getting to the central story. I love the frame story. I think it's really critical to holding this movie together. Like we talked about, you know, have touched on briefly the fact that this is a love story and a disaster movie. Like there's an Mm -hmm. action chunk of the movie that is basically an action disaster movie. Right. That the love story love story ends up taking a backseat to in a pretty big way in the last whole third of the movie, for sure. You get that when you have a frame, a literal frame that keeps everything sort of in bounds as to like what's going to happen. So as you mentioned, the animation of here's how it sank and why is really critical. But also, I think it's important to that the movie acknowledges the scientific fascination mm-hmm. that we have with disasters, right? Where we, when disasters like that happen, industrial disasters or natural disasters, this is a little bit of both. When disasters happen, we get really curious on like a very intellectual level. Like, oh, what went wrong? Like mm-hmm. what, you know, yeah. how fast was the ship going? And like, why did it sink so slowly? And why did it break in half? And it, we get really curious about that stuff. And also like, what were the hours leading up? Why was the captain, you know, doing this and that? And so kind of just putting to bed a lot of those questions on the scientific level and hanging a lantern on the fact that that is part of the reason why Titanic has the mystique that it does is that because of the exact way that it sank, like the very, you know, sort of specificities of the disaster made it what it is like, Mm. and not just the emotional drama components that made it an incredibly dramatic disaster, right? Where it's like, it's the maiden voyage. It's the biggest ship ever. Mm -hmm. It's the captain's going to retire. This is his last (laughs) voyage, right? All of those things. Right. 
those are more sort of the human emotional elements to why we are sucked in and by this fact that this thing actually happened. But then just getting the scientific part out of the way, I love it. I love that the movie chooses to do it. James Cameron even describes it as like one of the greatest murder mysteries of all time. And I think it does kind of like ignite that part of like, you know, a crime murder mystery of like, how did this happen? And you want to go back and recreate it. Like Mm -hmm. it it does activate a little bit of that. Yeah. It's interesting to hear about the origins of of this film for James Cameron, which he came from that scientific forensic perspective, Mm -hmm. kind of because he was interested in deep sea diving and diving shipwrecks and this was the mount everest of shipwrecks and Mm -hmm. so james cameron to to think about it in those terms so he was fascinated with it from that perspective to start with and it's almost like you the bill paxton character in this movie is so like a obvious standard for james cameron he's even kind of waxing poetic to his like home video camera as they're (laughs) diving and then the movie almost kind of shows him you know turning it off and be like enough of that BS. There's something going on there where it feels like James Cameron is almost in conversation with himself through this mm. Bill Paxton character of I'm this boy who's who's like excited by this shipwreck, but I need to actually connect with the emotional story of the real people. I mean, sure, thousands of people, you know, 1,500 people who died in this horrible tragedy. Mm-hmm. What's the human side of this disaster beyond the fun science dive exploration stuff? And this movie almost feels like we come in from the same perspective as Cameron and then we leave. He takes on the journey that he seems to have right. gone on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It definitely sort of has this feeling of you just picture James Cameron being like, how do we put we're going to make a period drama, right? But I want to do some like modern ocean diving stuff because I'm James Cameron. I want to believably put Bill Paxton in my movie because I'm James Cameron, but I can't put him in 1912. So there's no way it could work. Right. But as you were saying, Alex, like then you get the the emotional core and you get the emotional core in the frame story with Gloria Stewart's insanely Mm. just beautiful performance, right? Mm -hmm. As she's telling this whole story and sort of not just like what a great performance in and of itself, but what a wonderful performance of Rose as this character of somebody who is sort of like lovely, but also can say, I'll be goddamned or whatever. And just sort of, you know, (laughs) just kind of has this like fun kind of cynicism about her and wit and everything. So I love that we are hearing the story through her eyes which is how you hear things. <laughs> it does have the, the problem we talked about in the Hobbit uh, Patreon episode we did where she is telling us a story right. that, where she knows what all the other characters are up to. But this is very focused on Rose. you know. So like some of the things you hear coming through other people's, uh, like she hears a line of dialogue off in the distance. Someone saying, oh, where it'll go fast enough or it'll be fine, da, da, da. And then an hour to the movie, we're just complete cut scenes with people where Rose has no idea what's going on. But then we cut back to her telling the story. It works pretty well in this movie, I think. But yeah, I I really do like that we are sort of seeing this movie from her perspective. Totally. And James Cameron is not known for the subtlety of his dialogue. Uh And I I don't think that this movie would do anything to challenge that reputation. Right. But he is really good at characterization. When we talk about characterization, I feel like a lot of people immediately jump to, well, that's dialogue. But it's so many other things. Mm. And Cameron is great at creating these really interesting characters, individualizing them really quickly and making them, you know, three-dimensional and complex. They don't always speak very subtly or with a lot of nuance. They basically never do that. But (laughs) as you're pointing out, Brian, Rose 
both as a woman who's supposedly, you know, 101 years old, mm-hmm. right? Or almost 101 years old. The characterization of her as a much older woman needs to be consistent with the characterization of her as a young woman. And that character has to be intriguing enough and compelling enough to carry this three-hour epic on her shoulders. Yeah. And we have to meet her in the present day as an old woman telling a story, right? And that's a lot of work for that character to do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all the things that she does where she's like, I have my pictures, I have to have them with me when I travel. And just her utter confidence of like, Mm. I'm going to climb off this helicopter. I'm 100 years old and go out, go out to this ship. Right. And it's brilliant character design where she's, you know, kind of going toe to toe verbally with Brock, the Bill Paxton character. Do you want to hear this or not? You know, I'm going to tell you the story. Right. She's got that sass to her. She's got this fire to her. All of that is so important in the first half hour of this movie. It helps to create not just the mystery box of what happened to the diamond, because we are interested in that right? Diamond's not in the safe. Where was it? What happened? Mm -hmm, Why did we think it would be, right? Who was the guy, right? Like, this is where the son of a bitch slept. Who, right? Those lines are are in there earlier. Mm -hmm. That's a compelling mystery box, but we have to also be interested in who is Rose. I want to hear her story. It's really, really great characterization here. And then all the rest of the characters are similarly well distinguished, like, I truly don't get confused. There's probably 30 characters in this movie. Yeah, yeah. And I never get confused about who any of them are. Right. Yeah. I think I didn't fully appreciate Rose until this most recent watch through. And I think because when I was a kid, you know, you're not really thinking that much about it. And like, you know, I got that old Rose was old Rose. You're kind of not concerned with those things as much as a kid of like, hey, there's old stuff. And then we're going to go to the Titanic and it's going to be cool. (laughs) So I kind of like forget about the other stuff. But yeah, everything you're saying and then like her arc and everything that she does in this movie is so powerful and impressive. And toward the beginning, I was getting a little bit of those hints of like, she's got it super well. And she's like, you know, poor little rich girl. Like I was starting to feel some of that. But then they immediately are like, no, like you idiot. These are all the things that like this person is dealing with. And they make it all very clear. Right. Like she's trapped. They're talking about her being trapped while they're tying the corset. It's very clear, being communicated very clearly to everybody. And then also, you know, in the second half of the movie, when it becomes like an action movie for a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, I was like, oh, aliens. Right. Like James Cameron, like female protagonist in an action movie. Right. Something he really knows how to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, yeah, just I appreciated so much more just the range of things that that character has to places that it has to go and what she has to do and achieve and carry this Titanic of a movie on her shoulders. And it made me just appreciate all of that. And Kate Winslet so much more. Yeah. I've I've always loved Kate Winslet. I just watched Mare of Easttown, which she's amazing in. And Mm -hmm. so I think seeing that and then going all the way back was just like, Oh wow. You're always great. And have always been 22 years old um, during the making of Titanic. If you want to get depressed real quick. And and somehow not, seven years older than than her co-star who looks seven years younger <laughs> like yeah. leo is, is a year older dude think about their love story michael i believe you mentioned director Celine siyama director of portrait of a lady on fire she actually pointed to titanic as an example of a romance of a love story that had this equality in it that she was going mm. for in that film yeah and and there's something even just physically about kate winslet and leonardo dicaprio Like, neither of them feels dominant. Like, Mm. you know, in some ways, he often feels kind of like the more feminized 
person in the relationship. Sure. He's kind of he's just kind of like a scrawny kid, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and there's and in I was kind of tracking in the film, they really kind of go back and forth saving each other. You know, like there's genuinely large chunks of the movie where he is the damsel in distress and she is like the, the action hero coming to save him. Other points, his kind of know-how and street smarts is is the thing saving both of them. It's a really interesting example of like a heterosexual love story that has this really rare sense of just total equality in the power dynamics between the two characters. And nowhere is that more evident than in the dancing below decks scene where they like Mm. ditch the party, you know, that's upstairs and the whatever. They go and they're dancing down there and they're drinking and it's this, you know, very unbuttoned free-spirited, just among the third-class passengers, this sort of revel that's going on below decks of people who are genuinely enjoying themselves without pretension. Rose fits in there so well Mm -hmm. and can hold her own. She's completely out of place, but she never acts like she doesn't belong there or that she's worried they might not accept her because she is from the upper class Mm. or that she in any way has had different experiences than them that are somehow better or less than their experiences. And so the scene where, you know, they're having the arm wrestling contest and she takes the cigarette out of somebody's mouth and she's <laughs> like, oh, you think that's difficult. Let me, let me do this. And she, you know, does stands on her toes and her bare feet. It's really important for us to understand that that's who this character is, where she's so full of life that she can fit in anywhere and she can hold her own in any group and is willing to put herself out there and and have these kinds of experiences. And it makes the love story about something more than these are pretty people who are just attracted to each other. Right. And so the scene where then Jack pulls her into there, she's out promenading on the deck or whatever. And he pulls her into that room and he's like, if you marry this person, you're going to die. Like the fire inside of you is going to go out. And like, I'm not, I maybe, I in fact can't save you. You're the only one that can do that. Mm-hmm. But you can't go down this road because of who you are, not because right. I'm in love with you. Yeah. Or you have to be with me, but just because of who you are as an individual, this is death for you. Right. And so, it creates an actual core to the love story that we can cling to and care about, which is really surprisingly hard to pull off Mm. in a lot of like big action movies that try to kind of shoehorn a love story in there. Mm -hmm. Those love stories usually don't have anything at the center and they ring hollow for that reason. And this movie does not. It holds up because there's something in Rose. It reminds me sort of a Pirates of the Caribbean where you have the Mm, Keira Knightley character. She's out of step with all of society's expectations for her. And so for that reason, we know that even if she doesn't end up with Orlando Bloom's character, Will Turner, a pirate, mm. even if she doesn't end up with him, she's not going to marry Norrington. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and mm-hmm. so we kind of understand that about the Rose character as well. Yeah, exactly. Like you mentioned her as somebody who can fit in anywhere, but I would I would argue, and I think that this is what you're saying too, but it's not that she can fit in anywhere, it's that she would rather be below deck dancing with people. Yeah. And she would then be sitting around with the stuffed shirts and all that kind of thing, you know? So it's sort of not just her being like, oh, we're in this situation now. I guess I'll be this character. This is her being like, oh, thank God. I actually f- yeah. am like find people to be around that I actually want to be around. Yeah. It's really impressive. And, and kind of going back to what you were saying, Trish, about how the characterization and in, in the movie and how yep. you know you really understand her place because you really understand the characters around her and I nominate Billy Zane as one of the best villains of all time. <laughs> yeah. Truly. Yeah. Just the way he uses his voice, 
his hair just the most mm. <laughs> yeah like mm. just so deliciously uh obnoxious Hateable. Just, yeah punchable yeah. yeah but i love watching him and he yeah. he does it in a way that's yeah that's believable like all these people there are no s- small performances really i would yeah. say nothing in this movie is small but it's all like believable it, it, it's all feels cohesive in a mm-hmm. world and you know on kind of a meta level i think this was something i was thinking about too is you know, this movie obviously was huge and it resonated with a lot of people. And I feel like, as we're saying, James Cameron doesn't do subtle, but he does make extremely accessible films yeah. that really tell their story as hard as possible. Somehow he, he manages to make these characters be big enough that anyone can watch it and get exactly who Billy Zane is immediately. Like we know how to feel about Cal, but it doesn't feel like, you know, he's talking down to the audience at all or right. Like, right you know there's there's some little gray area that he finds that makes these characters their functions in the story be really powerful without kind of beating you over the head with it at the same yeah. time right yeah i mean they say you know a good villain doesn't think they're a villain right but i think that what you do get from the billy zane character is he may not think he's a he's a bad person, but he sort of revels in his disdain for the lower class, you mm-hmm. know. And and I think that like, and he is excited about that. He does he does get joy from that. And I think he would that character would admit that he gets joy from that. So I think that's yeah. something that you're able to easily extract and say sort of like, boom, villain, because that's the thing we can all kind of you know hopefully all look at and be like, oh yeah, you're you're a dick. I got it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The gray area you're pointing to, Michael, is the fact that all these characters, even if they're big, they are believable for the reason that he's done the camera has done the work to set up back. You feel like there's backstories for all these characters. They came from somewhere. Billy Zane grew up in a life of probably filthy rich privilege, and he's, he's been in this environment. Rose's mother comes from a very specific Mm -hmm. situation and context and kind of social system where she's just desperately trying to hold on to class every character isn't just there to be a villain or to be this influence just because they have a reason and that those reasons are baked into the story world and are very clear and i think when these archetypes or these big characters don't work in films it's because they just seem to be there to be there and they're mm-hmm. they're just plopped there to be an influence on the protagonist but they're kind of there for no reason. And we don't know why they're being evil. They're just being evil. Right. And this goes back to, this is the perfect marriage of subject matter and theme. Mm, Because you look at what happened in the real life Titanic and how survival or not was fell along class lines. And so you see that there's Mm -hmm. the classism baked into the disaster. And the smartest thing James Cameron ever did was construct, like, take that theme of, like, this is the classism of the time and of this particular world and embed that directly into his central characters 
and then force them to deal with it as part of the A plot. Right. Because really, the, the disaster is the B plot. Mm -hmm. The love story is the A plot. And by transposing that theme across those two different plot lines, you have this cohesion to the themes that we see. And same thing with the gender roles, right? Mm -hmm. Like women and children first. That's who goes into the lifeboats. The gentlemen are expected to do this. There are these social expectations of gender roles. Let's take those and put them directly into our central characters and force them to deal with it. It's really sharp screenwriting, like really basic screenwriting technique to take the thing that you're excited about, which is this grand, like amazingly dramatic historical event disaster thing that has all this melodrama packed into it already. And then to find the fictional story that's about the same thing right? Mm -hmm. at its very heart and to marry those two things together. And that's why this movie has the lasting power that it has had. I really think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said that in a movie that has this giant ship sinking, crazy effects, people with guns chasing each other, like the moments that make me stand up and cheer are Rose telling her mother to shut up and <laughs> spitting in Cal's face. Spitting in his face. It's so good. Is it one of the best moments in film history or like sad, most satisfying moments? Uh, yeah. It's so cathartic. And it's yeah. even a payoff. It's a payoff, it's a payoff to payoff. the spitting contest. Right, right. This right. movie, just really quick aside, set up some payoffs. Yes. Like further win in this movie. Mm. I realized even this time, even... His Italian friend Fabrizio has a pocket knife to cut like lose the lifeboats at the end. They mm. won that in their gambling thing at the very oh, beginning. Wow. I never noticed like, that. Even the freaking pocket knife at the end came from somewhere. Like it's just crazy. Yeah. Also, real quick, just Kate Williams' performance before she tells her mother to shut up is just first of all the mother, like you were talking about that sort of sense of, oh, well, I hope it's not going to be too crowded and cold on on the boat, like, as they're trying to say, you know, and she just goes, oh, mother, shut up! Like, she just, <laughs> it's sort of calm, and then just goes, boom, it's so good. It's such good line delivery. Yeah. Although, I think it is critical, that scene between her and her mother, just really quickly, that scene between her and her mother, where she's like, do you want to see me working as a seamstress? You have to marry Cal. Mm -hmm. Without right. that, I feel like right. we don't know why Rose doesn't just leave Cal immediately. Right. It's almost like I wish I had that information earlier in the movie where it's like, oh, the money's gone and there's a huge pile of debts. Right. Okay, that I get. And like, she's like now, you know, responsible for her family, essentially for keeping her family in the lifestyle that they're in. And like, but yeah, that's a really critical scene between her and her mother. And Frances Fisher is, by the way, is wonderful. And that's mm -hmm. so good. She, like, yeah, yeah. I will always think of her in this role just because it's so iconic. She just really <laughs> embodies that yeah. character and just her expressions when she's sizing yeah. up Jack. It's just she's so good. Yeah. I was reading that this movie did surprisingly well in India, I think. And they were saying it it has hmm. these echoes of Bollywood, which is often concerned with, you know, marriage and class and like these kind of big epic things. And these themes were resonant on a global scale in a way that maybe some other themes wouldn't be. Huh. Because, I mean, this movie did so well internationally. And, and I think the fact that it was about class, which is a global issue, class and this big love affair at the intersection of class, I think is maybe a huge part of why it, it was such a worldwide success. Yeah, watching it this time around, it just made me angrier than ever about like the way that the 
third class passengers are treated and mm-hmm. those, those down gates, there. right? Yeah. The gates. And I was looking at them and I was like, the fact that those gates exist in the first place, why are those damn gates there? Mm. If not mm. to keep the lower class physically locked in their places, right? That has to be what they're for. The fact that those gates exist is the problem. Mm-hmm. It's right. not that the Titanic struck the iceberg or anything else. It's the fact that someone put, put those gates on there in the first place. Yeah, like I, I feel like this is all the kind of the James Cameron recipe that somehow he's mm-hmm. able to like yep. figure out like Avatar, love it or hate it. But it has all these things where it's like big spectacle, like simple, but universally like resonant like story and themes and stuff. So it's impressive that I feel like he's managed to somehow achieve this scale this kind of story that really does feel like there aren't a whole lot of them especially anymore like this kind of movie that he's able to create them i guess he hasn't in a while avatar came out a little while ago titanic was his second to most recent movie (laughs) yeah that's pretty crazy (laughs) and also his last two movies were both the biggest grossing movie of all time which is pretty impressive yeah It is interesting as the movie goes on and as it becomes kind of shifts into disaster movie mode. There are moments this time that lose me a bit. Hmm. And as you were saying, Alex, you know, there were my favorite moments as a kid because you want to watch, you know, like the the action stuff. The water flooding in and the things kind of Hmm. imploding. As a kid, I used to like sit in class and daydream about like filling up my house with water so I could film it and like recreate Titanic yes, in my yes. house. And just like, there's just so much drama, water. We already know that water looks cool on film. Like it's not rain, but it's kind of like rain. It's still yeah. really good. <laughs> but yeah, when the movie goes so hard into action mode, it kind of threw me off the ride a little bit because there was so much, you know, the investment in the characters and the, the drama and the tragedy of all of it's being set up. And then you're in hallways with strobe lights happening. Mm. And then there's a chase scene where someone pulls a gun on the sinking ship Titanic and there's a shootout. And then watching the extended scenes, which I did just recently and is oh really fascinating. If you're interested in filmmaking, you should watch them because it speaks volumes about the power of editing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's there's like, a you know, after Cal chases Rose and Jack, down into the water and into the dining room and Cal kind of realizes, oh, I put the diamond on her. Mm -hmm. In the movie, it it cuts away. And the deleted scene, which is an extended scene that they shot, Cal asks the valet, or who I know as the scientist from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. David Warner is the name of the actor. (laughs) Yes. Who I know as Keith Jennings, the photographer from The Omen, but go ahead. Who I know as Captain Sawyer from the Horatio Hornblower series. Uh, Nice. Uh, I don't know him from anywhere, (laughs) except for this movie. (laughs) Fair. Perfect. But Cal's like, you know, if you can find the diamond, I'll give it to you, and kind of encourages him to go and chase after them more. And then there's this like velociraptor scene in the kitchen like from (laughs) jurassic park where rose and jack can't get out of the dining room and so the valet guy is like walking around with the gun like looking for them but the like the water's like rising and it's just this really extended action sequence it feels completely totally out of place Mm -hmm. and obviously that's why they they cut it and just you know kept the kind of that first part of it but it was really interesting seeing first of all just seeing why they built that set because I remember watching behind the scenes of this a long time ago and they built this dining room set that they could slowly submerge into water over and over again like mm. it's this huge set and in the final movie it's in like a couple shots right. but like 
in this scene, it's like a huge set piece. So it was interesting to see that's why they spent all that money on that. But it, yeah, it also speaks to how impossible it must be to keep a movie like this in your head as a storyteller and be able to nail the tone right. pitch perfectly. Like that's impossible. And uh, that it was already so close is impressive. And then, yeah, watching these extended scenes, again, speaks volumes about the power of editing and finding the movie once you've shot it. And uh, yeah, it's, just, it's really fascinating to watch. There's 54 minutes of deleted scenes. In this movie. Wow. <laughs> Could have been four hours. Yeah. Well, I am convinced, I am sure of this, that somewhere there is a very elaborate map of the entire ship and the route that Rose and Jack mm. run through or like make their way through as the ship is sinking and like they have to do all the stuff that they have to do, right? Where it's like, here's where Cal Hockley's stateroom is, and here's where Rose's stateroom is, and here's where that place is on the very, very lowest deck where they lock him up and, and handcuff him to a pipe, and then here's the engine room. I'm sure that, that there's a very detailed map of that somewhere, just like a murder board, you know, yeah. <laughs> situation with, you know, diagrams on it. The thing that impressed me the most about it this time around, because I had the opposite experience of you where you're like, I'm not interested in much of the sinking. I'm three times as interested in the sinking this mm. time around. Like the sinking floored me yeah. this time around. To be clear, I love the sinking. The action chase sequences during the sequence sinking mm. feel a little bit weird, but but I agree. But continue. There's just like one of those, right? Yeah. Otherwise they're just they're just trying to get out of the water. I think it's the entire like the like stakes shift of the movie at this point. Like the yeah. guy who just shoots yes. himself in the head, you know, like all that kind of stuff. It's like suddenly the movie is like Obviously, it's trying to capture the chaos of this moment, and it and it does that. But it gets a little, just the movie becomes completely insane for a while, and then I think maybe you're so now you're like a little more disconnected from this very taut love story that you've been following for for two hours. Yeah, it used to feel important whether or not they got caught by Lovejoy, mm -hmm. which is the character name of that ballad. Right. Thank you, Lovejoy. That's great. Wait, what's his first name? His first name's awesome too. Spicer. His name is Spicer Lovejoy. Spicer Lovejoy. The character oh, James man. Cameron. He's fictional. You didn't have to name him that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone pronounces it valet in the movie, which really bothers me. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's a valet. He's not a valet. He's not parking your car. Isn't it? Is that different? All right. Uh, it's different. Trisha was yeah. making a point, I think. I know. Back to Trisha. I was, which is <laughs> what is so obvious and so impressive when you watch the sinking sequence, which is at least one hour of this movie. It's like real time. Yeah. It's basically real time, which is impressive in and of itself and really puts you through the experience of it. Right. But also, James Cameron clearly knew where all of the most dramatic things happened and pretty much put at least one character, if not his main characters, in that spot at the time that the dramatic thing happened. Mm -hmm. Like, the circuitous route that they're, like, running all over the ship, which is somehow justified by all of the twists and turns of the plot, also served to put us and the camera in the most advantageous spot to capture the most dramatic thing that's happening at any given moment. And if a dramatic thing is not happening wherever the characters are, He's going to throw something in there that is dramatic, like the little kid who's just standing there screaming right. in the hallway or whatever, which is such a heartrending, you know, brief scene. But mm -hmm. it's like every single thing, various steps as like more and more ground is lost to the water as the water is coming in and coming in. 
there's always a character there that we care about to justify, here's why we're looking at this right now. Mm -hmm. And also it gives you that sense of scope, right? Like that scale. We talked about disaster movies when we were talking with Lindsay Ellis about Independence Day and how disaster movies often have like 30 characters. And this is the reason why, is that you need to put characters all Mm -hmm. over the place to convey the sense of scope of a disaster. And this is like a masterful maybe the greatest disaster it's probably the greatest disaster movie of all time and it's for this reason it's that we constantly understand how big everything is and how widespread the disaster is and and all the different places that it's striking and in ways that we didn't immediately think about Mm -hmm. yeah i just want to second all of that because watching it this time i was so impressed that he believably had Kate Winslet going back down into the ship like multiple Mm -hmm. times for multiple reasons. We're going back down into the danger, even though like theoretically you could just stay on the deck the whole time or be in line for a boat. But there's always a story reason to take the main characters down below into the action. Uh, So that was really impressive. Also, just watching it again, just from the perspective of like promise of the premise, like he Mm -hmm. thought about what do you want to see? in a movie about the biggest ship ever sinking. And like, we're going to shoot all of that. And we're going to find a narrative justification for including all of it. We're going to do the spectacle all the way. And, and I always just really appreciate that. If, if I'm going to go to see a big movie about a big thing, don't skimp on me. Like, I want to experience the whole thing. And I feel like I get to experience every aspect of this disaster. And there are the bodies falling that are almost kind of fun sometimes where it's like yeah somebody hits a propeller and spins yeah there's a little bit of that like maybe we're kind of having too much fun with this but that's balanced out by a lot of really heart-wrenching drama and groundedness to the tragedy and real human like sadness and loss and the shots of the the old couple on the bed and Mm -hmm. the mother with her children like he goes out of his way to really make you feel the gravity of the lives lost and it never tips over into just like you know like every disaster movie now where it's just the entire city all the skyscrapers just fall into the ground and a million people just died but i felt nothing Mm -hmm. he grounds the disaster in this like human reality that makes it meaningful and it doesn't ever tip into just like yeah, the rock is flying a helicopter away from a city falling into the ground and nothing matters, Right, uh, which is our current disaster movie aesthetic. A little, little too yeah. bouncy for you, buddy? A little too bouncy. <laughs> yeah, the nearer my God to thee sequence is the one that you're talking about, Alex, yeah. where the musicians come back on deck mm-hmm. um, and they're like, oh, you know, we're done playing. OK, good luck, guys. Bye. And then the violinist decides to stay and play. And it works so well because it captures upper class with that couple that you're talking about lying in their bed and then the lower class with the mom telling her children the story and then it you know it it sort of conveys again the whole scope but it ties together we've actually seen those characters before we may not right. remember exactly who they are we've seen them before but it's equally humanizing again it's doing a thematic thing here right we're looking at the class divide and noting that the loss of life is the same and equal Right at the end of the day, where we still feel the tragedy of like elderly people who live their whole lives in luxury and poor people who have considered themselves lucky to be on this ship and have been traveling like dif- in difficult conditions. The disaster comes for them both the same, you know, which gives us that 
pause of reflection right there at the true crisis of the movie, which is, you know, sort of three quarters of the way through the sinking. Yeah, that sequence is always really powerful. Hit me even harder. I think, you know, being an adult, uh, also, you know, Rose in the very beginning of the movie, just seeing her and this idea of as an old person who's lived a hundred years, finding like objects from your past and from such an important like moment. Mm. I feel like just that idea hit me. And there's so many things that's in this movie that are doing what you guys are saying. It's like making it grounding the emotion in a very human place and what it means to be human and life and death and tragedy so that when it is a little bouncy and there are people falling, it's never too far away from this kind of deeper core. I feel like we just have to talk a little bit about the amazing special and visual effects in this movie and how like we just don't make movies like this anymore because it no. didn't even really make sense to make movies like this then. It's crazy what they did mm-hmm. in this movie. Like yeah. the full scale Titanic models and giant tanks. Like this is crazy. Yeah. yeah. As always, if they're behind the scenes, watch them. And the behind the scenes for this are amazing. Yeah, they built almost a full scale one side of the Titanic and the top deck, you know, but they also knew which parts of the ship they could kind of cut out. So they cut out three different 20 feet sections because Cameron knew how to shoot it to still make it look long enough, but that saved them, you know, a couple of million dollars they could put towards something else. And yeah, just you see thousands of extras on yes. this actual ship, like going through the sinking motion. James Cameron is on a construction crane that they brought in because that was the only way to get these kind of helicopter shot angles. So like just the amount of coordination Mm. that goes into filmmaking, like blows my mind sometimes like all of this so that like the light bouncing off of all these things can arrive at a little piece of film in like a single space in space time. (laughs) Like that's what all of this was anyway, but also (laughs) that he's his uh, mastery of film and like movie magic is so impressive. And one of the things I talk about is, you know, James Cameron knows not to use the same visual effects trick twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says that's when people start to like notice what's happening. And it's it's really true. I'm watching it and I'm like, wait, okay, wait, that was a model, I think, but now that's CG now. Mm-hmm. And like every shot is a blend of a bunch of different things. And it was cutting edge visual effects they'd never done cg water before the way they use it to make you know the ship that they actually built could tilt six degrees but not enough so they would tilt the camera to give it that extra shift and then visual effects add a fake water line and a fake back like all these things that were kind of ushered in a new era of filmmaking what visual effects could do and all of it was enhancing this crazy real stuff they also built so you could feel the humanity of it and then use the visual effects to give it the scale. It's yeah. To me, it even if you know certain shots don't hold up, or you can tell what it is, the impact of all of it of the filmmaking mm-hmm. holds Big up time one hundred percent. Yes, mm. yeah, and that's the really interesting and, and unfortunate thing as we move forward in time and and sort of evolve technologically is 
when you say visual effects, I think, oh, you mean the terrible shot of them running down the hallway where their faces have been replaced, uh, like pasted on top of stunt people and it looks terrible. Which I noticed for the first time this oh, time. Man. I had never noticed that before. <laughs> Her face yeah. always looks weird to me in that one slow-mo shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or or like there's one of the one of the first shots where you see people out in the ship and it's just literally CG people walking around and but that kind of thing. But it's so good. I know, I know. Those are the ones that I could tell most right. on Blu-ray. Like, but, yeah. but I think that's what's unfortunate is the things that don't hold up stand out and the things that do hold up feel like, well, sure, because we can just do that in any movie now. So mm. in in the world of Endgame, you know, or or like any sort of huge blockbuster disaster type movie that we can do now, we're so used to this stuff that you go back and I don't mean us necessarily, but anybody, you know, who grew up watching, let's say, MCU movies can go back and watch Titanic and just say like, yeah, it looks it looks fine. Right. It looks normal. So that's why <laughs> mm-hmm. it is, I think, important to watch behind the scenes things and really appreciate. And I think I agree with you, Michael, that the weight of it is still there in the movie. And hopefully that's all that matters at the end of the day. It doesn't really matter what looks good and what doesn't. Are you feeling all of this? And I think that absolutely holds up in Titanic. But there is a sense of sometimes you do have to kind of it's, it's like if they do it right, you don't notice it. And that's so unfortunate right. because because it's not calling attention to itself. and You don't realize how much work came into it. So sometimes it is it is really lovely to go back and, and watch special features and really appreciate how things were done. Mm. Yeah. Maybe this is just me be coming from a place of growing up during this era of visual effects. But to me, part of the reason the impact is there is because of the mix of visual mm-hmm. effects, you know, techniques where in a Marvel movie, in an endgame, I can look, you know, watching the Black Widow trailer, I see Scarlett Johansson is like falling out of a helicopter and like a whole plane exploded maybe. And there's like five other guys also falling and shooting guns at the same time. And I just know none of that is real. I just, my brain knows like this is an animated movie for this moment. Like this is animation. Whereas there's a lot of moments in this Titanic disaster sequence where I actually even watching it, I can't even tell what's what. I, it right. feels so solid. The extras are real people falling down this deck. Like, I mm-hmm. really don't even know how to classify it in my mind as far as like, oh, this is now we're in CG land. I'm going to I'm going to like switch into that mode. This movie goes back and forth enough that I don't really ever switch into, you know, that bouncy mode. And maybe, Michael, you see it differently. But I, I, I find that this mix of visual effects actually takes me out of it less than a big modern film where it all kind of has this veneer veneer, yeah shininess bounciness it's an interesting thing because i think the other problem is that the quality of how we capture images has changed also Mm. so i think a lot of people see things and assume it's cg but it might actually be real or it might actually (laughs) be a blend of a lot of things But we're just kind of, we all sort of assume, well, if it looks that good, it must be CG. So I think there are also some visual effects now that do use a combination of things, but it blends together almost too well that like we don't question it. And then we just kind of assume that it must all be fake. Are you saying that Scarlett Johansson and those men and the exploding plane were all real? I think (laughs) a lot of that could be real. Scarlett Johansson is real. <laughs> what? <laughs> for for our listeners, Michael. She's an AI. I thought. Yeah. <laughs> Michael and Trish and I are talking about Loki over on Patreon. So Alex had to drop in on our Titanic episode just to diss the MCU. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to make sure I get that in there. Yeah. It reminds me of what you were saying, Michael, in the um, Edge of Tomorrow 
podcast when we were discussing like the beach scene where they're like storming the beach and everything. Mm -hmm. I think you hit on it absolutely right in that episode when you said there's something about the way that the human body moves when it is being pulled upon by gravity and interacting with objects in space that is really hard to fake. Mm -hmm. Like other things that are not the human body, pretty easy to fake. I personally, as someone who is not in any way tuned into what a CGN is, what is not, I don't have that skill. I don't bump on anything. <laughs> I, I'm literally just paying Which attention to the story. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how it should be. I wish yeah. I could know what that felt like. <laughs> yeah. I'm the kind of screenwriter that writes one line where I'm just like, the car explodes, and then it's someone else's problem. Yeah. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And I don't have to worry about how they're going to capture it. But I think you're absolutely right in the in that other things are much easier to fake. Sets are much easier to fake with CGI. Mm-hmm. Other objects like explosions, things flying around. I'm not going to bump on any of that ever. But when the human body is not moving or interacting in space the way that human bodies really do, I feel like there is something primal that kind of mm-hmm. just like responds to me. That's like, nope, mm-hmm. not right. Something's not right about that. And unfortunately, in this movie, the place where that stands out the most is when bodies are falling off of the Titanic. Right. Because you know that stunt people can't do that. Right. Because you know that when you see that happening, that's a death sentence for a stunt person. But they tried. Like, they tried it. <laughs> and they, they were breaking bones and stuff. <laughs> that's yeah. what I'm saying. And so <laughs> yeah. then it's CG and and good because don't kill your stunt people. <laughs> right. But, you know, I, I think that it's unfortunate that those moments end up becoming comic, not just because of the quantity of them although at a certain point the shock does start to wear off where you're just like oh my god the loss of life is so huge that i don't know what to do except kind of respond with like you know a little bit more of an emotional wall up at that point Mm -hmm. i think that's part of the reason why we sort of laugh at propeller guy (laughs) there's also the it's clearly not a real person whereas Mm -hmm. yeah i think that the stuff with the makeup where they're all frozen in the water Mm, yeah that are real human bodies in water. Yeah. It's arresting. It's very upsetting. I think it's that chilling. That mm. You might say. <laughs> <laughs> I think that all of that, again, because in that case, they're not moving, but there's that we understand these are real people. We understand the loss of life. They don't feel it's fake. right in front of us. There's nothing fake yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so there's a million things we can say about this movie. Let's move to lessons and continue the conversation in that context. Before we do, as Brian just mentioned, we are doing a mini series on Loki and our episode on the fifth episode of Loki has just come out. So if you want to hear Brian, Trisha and I react week by week to each episode, check that out. Alex is not there um, because he has feelings on the MCU. The MCU Scrooge is not participating. (laughs) Not welcome. But we might have him just watch the sixth episode without watching the rest and then tell us what's going on. (laughs) Maybe it'll just be a solo episode with Alex. (laughs) Oh, perfect. I talked to myself about (laughs) MCU. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That'd be kind of fascinating. So, yeah. So if you want to listen to our mini series on Loki, that's available on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon, as well as our monthly patron exclusive episodes. This month, it was The Departed, and it was a lot of fun to talk about all things Departed, get into some Martin Scorsese conversation also. So all that is awaiting on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. Link is in the show notes. Okay. Lessons. Trisha, what's your lesson? Wow, there are so many, but the one I'm going to choose is to return a little bit to the dialogue. Mm. So 
James Cameron's dialogue, as I said, not subtle, but very, very functional and in a way that doesn't call attention to itself. So there's a lot of dialogue in Titanic that is pretty on the nose about things, but it does accomplish what it needs to accomplish. And it's usually pretty well disguised within the context of the scene. So, you know, some of the scenes that are that feel a little bit more, I don't know, exposition-y, where you can kind of notice that the exposition is happening, like at the dinner scene, where they're like, oh, let's talk about the ship and all of the stats about how big <laughs> and how fast the ship is. And that stuff feels pretty on the nose, but it doesn't completely, you know, it's not completely out of place because it's with characters that have an interest in this kind of thing. It's right. like, here's the designer of, here's the ship builder. Here is the the managing director. Here he is. And it's basically makes sense that they would be talking about, you know, the stats of the ship here. And the one that really works for me is Rose's attempted suicide early on. I think that there's a lot of exposition crammed into that dialogue where he's like, it would really be tough to jump into the water from mm -hmm. here, but you might survive. It'd be painful. The real mm. trouble is the temperature. The water's mm. really cold. <laughs> and Obviously, it's doing exposition really hard, but because of the context of the scene, oh yeah, it kind of works. Like yeah. it doesn't call too much attention to itself. Like I said, it's highly functional dialogue. Is it the most artful dialogue I've ever heard? Absolutely not. Right. But it doesn't need to be. James Cameron is masterful at this, where every single line of dialogue is accomplishing multiple things. Mm -hmm. It's doing yeah. character work. It's doing exposition if it needs to be. It's also progressing the plot, right? And it's not a masterclass in complexity, but I'd rather have clarity. And especially in a movie like this, I would yes. rather have clarity. I would rather be able to think back to when Jack was talking about how cold the water is earlier in the movie than have someone say it to me right there. Right, right. Right? I don't want someone in the water going, wow, this water's cold. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's probably barely above freezing. Good point. Like, I don't, I don't want that there. Right. So put it in earlier, right? Like talking about how fast the ship can go. Oh, wow, the water, you know, the... The sea is so calm. It's going to make it harder to see the icebergs, though. That's fine. Yeah. We can have it there. And then 45 minutes later, we've forgotten about it until we need it again. Mm -hmm. That is good functional expository dialogue that is doing plenty of work. It is, if you're writing an action movie, there's probably nobody better than James Cameron to study. And this movie is a really, really great example of highly functioning dialogue. Yeah, it's that quote. I think it's a John York quote we used in our Minority Report video. Like, if you want to inject conflict into your exposition, and I think that mm -hmm. the Jack and Rose scene is is yes. exactly what you're yes, talking yes, about. Yes. Of he, I'm not even thinking about he is telling me information about the water and stuff like that. I'm thinking he is trying to find ways to make Rose not jump, and he's trying to make it sound very unpleasant to be in that water. You know, so like that is the objective. That is the conflict. That is what's happening in that scene. Guess what, audience? You're also getting some information that might be useful to you later, but that's not the point of, of the, that. That's not the primary function of that dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. That scene works so well on a number of levels. Yeah. I wish that there was a little more. Like I said, I wish I knew a little bit more about why Rose was going to jump. Like, yeah. I wish I had the information at that point about yeah. her family being broke mm -hmm. at that point mm -hmm. where she's like, I'm selling myself to save my family. That seems like a desperate situation. And I would kind of understand. But even so, 
that entire scene is just a really brilliant way. It's technically the meat cute of the characters. <laughs> yeah. Right. Some pretty brilliant meat cute. It's where they end up when they go into the ocean. Like yep, there's just so many things. Oh, right. Setups and payoffs. Yeah. Ah, so many. Jim. So good. <laughs> yeah. But then Kate Winslet goes to Lacuna Inc. and gets him erased. And then she has to like remember the <laughs> whole thing. It's, they have to do it over and over again. Yeah. Just a, as a quick little thing, one of the deleted scenes is they they come out of that scene. They like, you know, dissolve back into the frame story. And old Rose is like telling the story. And then the kind of, uh, you know, the really kind of gruff bearded yeah. deep sea diver guy is like, wait a minute, you were going to jump off the back of the Titanic to kill yourself? And then like just starts like laughing and like makes a joke out of it. Uh, and he was like, you could have just waited two days. And it is like a funny moment. And it, it's it's interesting seeing how like in the script, Cameron maybe felt the need to address that or like the, kind the of, irony. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But then in the final movie, you don't need that at all. And no, you don't, don't want that. that. Every one of the deleted scenes are things you don't want. Well, and the line you're talking about does too much foreshadowing, right? Where it's like, you could have just waited two days. Where I think one of the reasons this movie, the love story part of this movie is so triumphant is because for an hour of the movie, I forget that they're headed for disaster. Right. Like I pretty well managed to forget that actually because the conflict that's happening within the love story is compelling enough. When they do finally remind you, it's like, it's like as the sun is going down, like on the final day or something. Right. It's mm-hmm. like, that was the last time Titanic saw, saw daylight. daylight. Right. Yep. It's like, oh, okay, we got to, okay, we're going into this Buckle now. in. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's really good. Also, Brian, what's your lesson? Man, there's there's a lot of lessons. I learned from, I think, Rose's mother that the purpose of university is to find a suitable husband. Um, <laughs> so that's good to know. Rose has um, already done that. Yeah. I've learned that, um, you know, if you want to make sure the audience remembers your two main characters' names, have them say each other's names a lot. Constantly. Every scene. Rose, come yeah. over here, Rose. You're going to have to hit there, Rose. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's about Jack. 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 Listen, there are a lot of people on that boat. <laughs> How are they going to know who they're talking to? Is my, you know, you got to call everybody by their names. But no, we, we went over a little bit, uh, speaking of, of Rose, the design of her character. You know, the thing that struck me the most, having seen this movie for the first time a year ago, of course, I knew so much about it. You know, it's like seeing Planet of the Apes or something for the first time. You're like, I know so many of these references already. Mm-hmm. And the thing that struck me the most was I expected it to be this trite thing of Rose being this stuffy character who sort of is fully invested in that societal world. Mm. And then Jack is the character who maybe like pulls her out of it or whatever. And it was so refreshing to see that right from the get-go, she already is not in that world. She doesn't want to be in that world. Mm-hmm. We talked about this a little on our Mulan podcast recently, the sort of the, the, the character who's like, I don't really fit into this this thing that that you guys are doing. And to me, like that's why she wants to jump. She, you know, she said that the um Gloria Stewart has this line, I don't remember what it is, but she says, like, I just felt like I was stuck, I was trapped and and I I couldn't breathe, kind of thing. You know, so it's just she is stuck in this place and she wants to get out. So Instead of Jack being the one who who sort of opens her up and makes her realize who she is and that kind of thing, he's just the impetus to help her escape. 
to a place that mm-hmm. she already wants to go, you know? So that's why right. I love that. Like, you know, it does take her a, a minute to open up to Jack because she's so not used to like somebody who is so straightforward and that kind of thing. But it's like five minutes of a three hour plus movie of, of just her being like, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, I, I never. But as soon as he's like, hey, let's go spit on some shit, you know, then like, <laughs> she's like, yeah, let's do it. And he's like, let's go downstairs and dance with some like crazy Irish people. Let, let's do it. Like she so quickly, clearly is this is where she wants to be, you know? Yeah. And then I also love that. Molly Brown is this nice support character for that, yes. like, like a female character who's who's like, look, you can be part of this upper class without buying into all this posturing and etiquette and that kind of thing. And I love her little her little one liners throughout where she where she just oh, sort yeah. of digs on everybody, all this class system BS and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I don't know what the how to sort of put that into a more universal lesson, but but I I, I just love that Rose is already who she is she you know jack is not there to to change her or anything like that jack is just there as a Mm -hmm. means for her to escape to a place that she already wants to go yeah Mm -hmm. a little mini lesson from that the molly brown character what a brilliant ally character where she's she's uniquely positioned as new money to have an outside perspective on this upper class world she can be an ally to jack an ally Mm -hmm. to rose in some cases And, and she's a real person that james cameron found and Right. Realize I can use her in this narrative way. So good. It's yeah. also good. <laughs> yeah. Similarly, the Thomas Andrews character, who's the ship yes. designer, Victor yeah. Garber. I just who, I love I him. Love him. Yeah. I love him so much. One of my favorite actors ever. <laughs> His but weird little face. I love it. He's also a great ally character. Like, yes. you mm-hmm. know, who a ends rose. up being. Yeah, exactly. It's not really explained as to like why they get along so well or understand each other so well. But it's in that scene where she knows she's like, I know a fact about the ship. There's not enough lifeboats. And he's like, don't even worry about it, Rose. I have considered that very thoughtfully. And, you know, there's just something about their interaction where they have a rapport and understanding. And it it kind of supports all this other stuff where he becomes a you know very important character, you know, in terms of function later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a very decent person. Yes. Right, because in that scene, he's like, yeah, you're right. I wanted there to be more, but other people <laughs> thought it would look bad. Yeah. So I feel like he's also kind of positioned as, you know, he's also amongst this upper class, but as maybe more practical. When yeah. It comes right. to wanting to save people's lives and stuff like that. I feel like we need someone to take responsibility, right? And Ismay does not take responsibility. And we know that the captain right. does, you know, Bernard Hill's so wonderful in this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very cathartic to see somebody take responsibility, even though, you know, we're not sitting here blaming that character, but it's someone assuming like shouldering sort of like the loss of life is something that I maybe could have done more about and could have prevented. And I'm going to give away my life fast and, you know, yeah. set the clock yeah. here. It's so yeah. poignant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also in that scene, because they couldn't fully tilt that, all the actors had to lean forward mm. and they made I was wondering. glasses with fake like liquid in it that was tilted at the right (laughs) like it was like a gel that was tilted perfectly like it's just so good filmmaking this it's just so good yeah the commitment that's so unnecessary it's so so great but it's so necessary to have it come out like this you know like that's that's why the commitment is so impressive is this movie wouldn't feel so classic still if there wasn't that commitment to every frame being james cameron perfect you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Alex, what's your lesson? So we've been talking about how yeah, James Cameron dialogue is not subtle. And, you know, just you mentioning exposition and and there's there's this kind of one dimensional way, I think, to critique James Cameron, where you can say, oh, there's like cliches and it's very melodramatic and it's 
this and that. And James Cameron had a great response to a lot of that. I read an interview with him. He was responding to somebody who was saying, oh, these characters are too big. It's, they're too cliche. This is not like smart writing. Mm. And and he was saying, no, this is all intentional. Like I'm incorporating universals of human experience and emotion that are timeless. And these are archetypes that we are familiar with. They're part of our basic like emotional fabric. Mm. Like, my lesson would be don't mistake archetypes for cliche. Like there is a reason to use archetypes in a movie like this. You're doing a big, grand historical epic. Like we don't want edgy weird characters that are like fringy (laughs) like it makes sense to have a jack that is this kind of impossible vagabond artist dreamer you know like he (laughs) he, it it, like that's that's the archetype we need for his role in the movie and to complicate him or to try to make him edgier or weird or yeah dysfunctional in some way just to be like cool wouldn't serve the movie that and serve the story we're telling here and so I think where where Cameron excels is in doing these big epics in which the power of the characters is from that archetypal Mm -hmm. root, not from like, oh, it's like the Joker where it's like a really edgy 21st century cynical thing. You know, I think that's where a lot of the backlash came from, from Titanic is like, oh, it's too earnest. It's too, Mm -hmm. you know, girly love story. I think there's like a late 90s, you know, cynicism that I think was repelled by some of its earnestness but that's exactly why this movie works and i think embracing the earnestness embracing the archetypes is important for telling this kind of a story yeah yeah i think there's always more of a market for earnestness than we think there is Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. cynicism and irony are not new yeah um and i feel like people tend to think that they want edgy and ironic or cynical or whatever and there's pretty much always somebody who just wants this deep, earnest, sincere, dramatic entertainment thing. I mean, I was thinking today that it really reminded me of Star Wars, where like Mm, in the 1970s, everybody was making like really edgy movies, you know, Mm -hmm. like Midnight Cowboy was like a Best Picture winner from the 70s. And it's like, or there's a space opera. Right. Yeah, there you go. I feel like people do sort of always want these big archetypal stories like you're talking about, Alex. You got to do it well, but right. yeah. Well, and another quote that I read was, uh, I think Leonardo DiCaprio maybe wanted to to play Jack in a more, I don't know, actory way. Or, mm. Yeah, he, he wanted to find some tick or something. And just Cameron was like, no, I'm not going to let you give him a limp or a tick or whatever the hell you actors want to do. <laughs> I he, is, he is this thing. He is this artist dreamer guy. Yeah. And yeah. like, yeah. we're not going to muddy that with like your actory things. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, this movie actually reminds me of Lord of the Rings. Um, not totally. Ju- not mm. just because of Bernard Hill watching the unbreakable surface, you know, break that's going <laughs> to kill all those people. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> but because of the sort of the, the operatic nature, but also the earnestness, there's never, you know, we talked about this on our Lord of the Rings podcast, like there is never a character sort of winking at the camera or going like, right. this is ridiculous or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. but it. It's also a movie where if you only watch five minutes, it might seem like really silly and weird. But when you actually watch the whole thing, you get totally sucked into it. And because the movie is being earnest, then you you are you're able to to get sucked up in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bravery required, I think, Mm. to to try Mm. to reach for all those things, because I I think that's the other problem. People say they want cynicism, but I think it's also cynicism can be as reduced to simplistic 
you know, almost, you know, for sure. Cliches of cynicism. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As much as earnestness. It's just that like, if you aim for cynicism and miss, you don't fall as far as as when you aim for something genuine and amazing and miss that can hurt because you're putting more out there. So I do think there is like a, a bravery that I feel like also is is kind of in the DNA of this movie, like, you know, mm-hmm. the characters and like Rose, but also just the absurdity of trying to make this movie <laughs> and how almost terrible it all went and could have gone. Yes. But like persevering through creates something that had never been seen before. Mm-hmm. Like the movie is like a fairy tale unto itself and in a way. I was going to yeah. say, one of my memories from this time was I, I remember seeing like Entertainment Tonight on the TV. I have a visceral memory where it was the, the week before Titanic came out and the, all the headlines were, is Titanic going to sink or swim? Like <laughs> way over right. budget, like could be a disaster. Train wreck in the making. Most expensive movie ever made at yeah. the time. No. Yeah. Like, all the chatter was about what a disaster this was because it was so over budget. It had been delayed. Like it's going to be a train wreck. So it's, it's such a Cinderella story and how it turned out. It's crazy. And like, there weren't stars in it. Like, like Leo had done stuff, but like Leo and Kate weren't superstars like they are now. That happened after this and all that. Yeah. My lesson is, is about how much I appreciated the grandeur of the beginning of this movie. Um, You know, after the frame story, the whole the doc like the doc sequence is just yes insane and does so much work and just kind of like injects energy into you. Mm-hmm. We talked about how you know if you didn't appreciate the ship, you wouldn't appreciate the sinking Correct. of the ship. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so, like it's it's almost exhausting how much time they spend like. Oh my God, it's that t- the ship Titanic is and these things, right? These sweeping shots, and people are saying things about it, and you're seeing all these people load and how happy they are, and Jack and Fabrizio like running through and barely like, and then they get on the ship and then they run to the top, and then he's the king of the world. And we're like, there's so much spent. Dolphins. <laughs> right. The dolphins. The like, dolphins. That's a really extended sequence, and it's doing other things along the way, but it's also setting up. The, the stage of everything and yeah. putting you in the mindset of how amazing this thing was so that later when you see it fall down and collapse and all that, like you, you understand the emotional impact of it. And it reminded me a little bit of like Jurassic Park too, right? Like the first yes, half of Jurassic yes, yes. Park is like, isn't this place amazing? Like there's always a little bit of concern because like it's dangerous too, but like appreciate like the grandeur of it. And so then it's just that much more entertaining and powerful when you see it all fall down and i just think it's brilliant and done so brilliantly in this movie and like jurassic park there is a sequence in which a helicopter is arriving with an old person in it and people are having to talk (laughs) over the helicopter for a long period of time (laughs) i was thinking about that this time around too michael and how Part of the drama of the story is the like human hubris, right? Of having yeah. like built this something that is this huge, that's so much bigger and more extravagant than it needed to be. And then to like make it try to cross the ocean as fast as possible. And like, which, you know, is editorial on James Cameron's part. There's no indication that they were trying to drive it extra fast from my understanding. But that sort of folly of like human ambition is a part of this story also. And I think that we need to get that feeling like where, you know, we have the class stuff that's embedded in the theme, but people from both the upper class and the lower class are in awe 
of this mm. accomplishment, right? Mm-hmm. Where Rose's first line is like, I don't know, it's not that big and not that great. And mm. it's Cal that's like, wow, hang on. This <laughs> is actually so much bigger and more expensive and, you know, uh, more luxurious than that other ship. So I think really conveying the scale here is what that opening sequence does. And it also makes us in awe not just of the special effects and all the filmmaking, right? The scale modeling and the actual set building and things that were going on. It makes us in awe of, again, they did accomplish something really incredible. And that hubris is what makes the fall that much greater. It's this like sort of Icarus myth. Yeah. Yeah. Also just, I love that they only built one side of the ship and it was the wrong side for yep. the port. And so they had to shoot yep. everything backwards. Flopped. Yeah. Yep. Mm, that's it's insane. Just of, it's just one of my favorite, like, little, like, you know, filmmaking things. Filmmaking. Yeah. Lores of, yeah. Love it. Yeah. This movie is one of a kind. I feel like we could, like, start from zero and have a conversation that's completely different about this right. movie. Cause again, there's just so much to talk about. But yeah, I, I'm glad people are still watching it and I, Hope people continue to do so and study it because it is it feels like a, like a Casablanca now to me. Of just oh, like, for this sure. is like a staple yeah. in film history and it should be studied and appreciated as such. It's in the National Film Registry of the United States. So it's being preserved for all time as part of that library. There you go. What else have you guys been watching besides Titanic? <laughs> Alex, what have you been watching? Well, speaking of Kate Winslet, uh, I've been finally catching up on Mare of Easttown because I've nice. heard so much about it. And I am a big fan of HBO crime miniseries. Uh, so it's right up my alley. And I also love it. Uh, I have one episode left, which I'm hoping to watch tonight mm. right after we finish this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, Kate Winslet is amazing in it. I love her performance. I love you know, I, I know the behind the scenes story of how she's been really involved as a producer on the show and kind of taking a lot of ownership of it. And you can mm-hmm. just feel how much she cares about this character and really cares about the story. And it's a really interesting example of like a crime story where I almost couldn't care less about the crime, not because the crime mystery detective stuff isn't interesting. It's because the characters are already so rich and so real and they're family issues are so intractable in such a believable way Mm. that I'm just hooked from the just character drama. I don't don't Mm -hmm. even need the detective stuff, but that's great too. So it's, it's a great example of when you have a cast of characters and you set up these really difficult situations, real, you know, very real life kind of family dynamics, kind of community issues and just, grounded into this really believable reality like all the characters they're in a bad place for a reason and they can't get out of it for a reason they're not just Mm -hmm. being mopey because it's we want to be depressing in this show it's like everything is intractable and so you're on the on the edge of your seat to figure out how can this possibly be resolved by the end of the show and that's even before we get to the mystery and the murders and the detectiveness uh so just really impressive accomplishment and i I, I want more of it. I, I don't want them to make more just to make more, but like I'm already sad there's only one more episode left with this character and, and this world. Mm. Yeah, the writing in it is really great and the performances are all really great. There's very strong thematic cohesion mm-hmm. and yeah, just watching characters do the best they can in impossible situations mm-hmm. I feel like is really compelling and it it nails that 100%. Probably my favorite like TV series that I've seen in a long time. So. I also recommend that. 
Nice. Yeah. Cool. Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, so I went to an outdoor screening of Stop Making Sense, the Talking Heads 1984 concert film. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I say outdoor screening. It turned into a, a dance party, basically. Um, <laughs> but I am I am not a Talking Heads mega fan, but this is just one of the best concert films of all time. It's directed by Jonathan Demme. Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia, you know, and cinematography by Jordan Cronenweth, Michael Ears, Perking, uh, most famously the DP of Blade Runner. But his son, Jeff Cronenweth, is the cinematographer of Fight Club, Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, Nine Inch Nails, Perfect Drug Video, one of the best music videos of all time. Prove me wrong. (laughs) But his first production credit was as second camera assistant on Stop Making Sense. So a little father-son origin story, full circle thing there. But the the film itself, like if you're like, hey, Brian, what if I don't like the music? First of all, can't hear you, uh, podcast. (laughs) Um, But second of all, like it's impossible. It's just the most fun, infectious, like just funky exciting energized music ever i was thinking as we were walking back to the car i was like only other thing i could think of that is this much just fun straight through is into the spider-verse mm. um and maybe like wow. Lego movie you know <laughs> so uh, outside of the lord and miller verse uh sure <laughs> stop making sense is is just so much fun uh the whole thing is on youtube actually in good quality so if you want to go check it out just watch the opening psycho killer with just David Byrne before and then watch. Um, there's also a intro with Tina Weymouth and uh, the drummer Chris France. I don't have his name written down, but they are husband and wife and she was the bassist and he was the drummer. They were also in the band Tom Tom Club and she is just the coolest person alive in this thing, like her, her dancing and just she's like so watchable. And uh, it's just it's just so fun. Go watch Stop Making Sense. Watch it with people. Dance. Have a good time. Nice. Beautiful. Uh, and Trisha, what have you been watching? So I was clicking around in like a nostalgic movies section or throwback section on Disney Plus, mm. And I decided to watch The Rocketeer mm. for the first time <laughs> since it since okay. it came out. Okay. Wow. Which yeah, it yeah. came <laughs> out in 1991. So basically oh the first God. time ever. Right. I did not remember oh anything about it from 1991. And what a joy this film is if you haven't watched the rocketeer recently can you please just go to your disney plus and it's just heaps of fun Mm. so it's it's billy campbell jennifer connelly alan arkin who is so great in it Mm. timothy dalton who is just the greatest villain terry o'quinn john polito in supporting roles Mm. like absolutely stacked cast directed by joe johnston and it is like a you know golden era Hollywood, like 1930s Hollywood, like action caper thing with these like adventure elements. And it's just, it's so great. Like, I don't know, really stands up. I'm so shocked that they haven't made anything else out of that IP. And I'm not trying to jinx it. I don't, Mm. I'm not saying I want that. I'm just saying it's a gem. Yeah. I heard rumors a couple of years ago, but I don't know. I was anything. like, does Disney know they have a gem? Because <laughs> it's called The Rocketeer. And it's just a really great action adventure movie that is doing this throwback thing. You know, it was made in 1991. It's about like the golden age of Hollywood. Timothy Dalton plays like an Errol Flynn character who is just like a sleazeball <laughs> and just so petty. And there's, yeah, like some 
30s espionage elements to it and lots of like people flying around in jetpacks and i mm. well i don't know what you want from your movies but if it's not the rocketeer i don't know like yeah. it's probably the rocketeer i was so obsessed with that movie i watched that movie over and over again like the shape of his helmet yes. like the way that like the fuel leaks out of the jetpack and then he has to use his like gum to Chewing like gum, plug up the hole yeah. like oh my god i was so obsessed <laughs> with that movie it's got some early aviation stuff in it too like you know, which I know a little bit about. It's great. It's just, it's great. Lots and lots of fun. Yes. Awesome. So I recently watched Julie and Julia, which I had never seen before, but it heard lots of things and it's very charming. I enjoyed myself. Mm -hmm. It was not at all what I was expecting, but I was also also always confused about what the movie was because I was (laughs) like, is this a biography of (laughs) Julie Child? But why is Amy Adams? Is that like her daughter? Like what's going on? Like from the trailers or whatever images I had seen, I didn't really know. I kind of thought it was sort of like the hours maybe also. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's kind of like a a rom-com fun version version of the hours a little bit i don't know anyway but it was really (laughs) it was really fun uh written and directed by nora efron it was like so 2007 and it's like 2007 about 2002 like yeah the year of the hours oh yeah Yeah, there you go everything is about blogs and like the idea of being famous on the internet is new and strange to people and so it was was just a really interesting look at this kind of transitional period that was happening as well as being a really interesting story about these two people and the way they kind of you know weave their two lives together and how you see also Meryl Streep and Stanley Tucci all the time this is what I was gonna Uh say (laughs) <laughs> so good as like foodie people right. I just mm. want it the most yes. <laughs> it's just so much fun Chris Messina is also just like he's such a he just, he's that guy yep. and I'm like alright yeah, he really is you're that guy you're doing it okay <laughs> so yeah Julie and Julia very fun I feel like it it feels right for the the Titanic throwbackiness also like that mood of like mm-hmm. going right. back in time a little bit to 2002 which was a long time ago now <laughs> Yes, it was. (laughs) So this has been our conversation about Titanic. Thank you for going on this epic journey. Just this movie is... I might just go rewatch it now. I like. I was going to say. It's really good. It's really compelling. (laughs) And I can't tell how much of it is just those child like neurons getting excited that they're firing again. Mm. But like, it's really fun to watch. If anyone just... Yeah, wants to exchange superlatives with me about <laughs> like how we feel about Titanic. Well, I, I feel like yeah. I could talk about this a lot more. So like maybe over in the Discord. We need to take it over there. Or Twitter, please. Like I could talk about this movie for hours and hours. I have so much to say. Yeah, so much. But we will end this episode here. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, as we said, our episode on The Departed is available on our Patreon, as well as the Loki Episode 5 reaction miniseries. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons for supporting the show, making it possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Tweet us about Titanic so we can talk about it. Uh, Hope you enjoyed and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everyone. Never let go. Bye. A woman's heart is a deep ocean of secrets. Wow. Thanks, James Cameron. (laughs) An absolution that would never come. Also, the way she says precipice always bothered me as a kid. (laughs) 